0: We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at one dollar. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest Therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp home slash gold. Before I get into today's podcast, before I forget, I want to remind or inform the audience that immediately following today's live podcast, I'm going to be doing a live QA for premium members at Shift Radio Premium. So go to shiftradiocom premium after the podcast is over and get ready uh, to ask your questions and I will answer them. If you're not currently a member, you can go to the locals uh, my locals page and you can sign up to become a premium member. Well, they had a big party on Wall Street today and pretty much everybody got invited except Bitcoin and uh, crypto related investments. I'll maybe get to that a little bit later, but it was a huge rally across the board. Uh, Tech stocks, uh, you name it, it went up. Although today the star were the small caps. Everything was up, but the small caps really were up. The Russell 2000, which has been a big laggard in the market, remember I've talked about on the last podcast, how the breadth of the market has been so narrow that just a handful of stocks have been rallying. It was just the generals and the troops were left behind. Well, today, the troops were charging, finally, and you got the Russell 2000 up 5.5%. That's one of the biggest uh, one-day moves I can recall seeing in the Russell 2000. The only index that I think beat it today, although I could be wrong, I haven't checked everything, but the uh, GDXJ, the junior gold miners, barely edged it out with a 5.7% gain on the day. But it was a huge rally. The Dow Jones up almost 500 points. I think it was up over 600 points earlier in the day. So a little bit of profit taking from some of the the day traders, but huge rally in bonds. In fact, the yield on a 10 year is down to 4.44, Remember, we got above 5, briefly, and now we're back at 4.44. The 30-year yield is back down to 4.62. And the 5-year had the biggest move down today of them all. The 5-year, uh, which was you know over 5%, again, is now down to 4.421. Now, the dollar went down, but that means all the foreign currencies went up. The euro, the Swiss franc, the Australian dollar, even the Japanese yen finally had a rally. The dollar index was down one and a half points. That is a big move. I mean, it, we've had moves of this size before, but they're very rare. This was one of the weakest days uh, of the year and maybe of many years uh, for the US dollar index. And in fact, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago on this podcast that three weeks ago, we I observed a significant outside reversal week in the dollar index, where it took out the high from the previous week and then closed below the low of the previous week. And we closed at just over 105 on the week. And I said, I think the top is in for the dollar. Well, today we barely held the 104 handle, almost 104 exactly. So we're now 3% below the peak of that uh, reversal week three weeks ago. And if you look at the chart of the dollar index, it has a long way to drop. So I think we're confirming uh, the observation I made about that reversal. So the dollar looks very weak. Gold rallied today, about 15 bucks. Uh, it's about, I think it closed at 1963, you know, the year I was born. I think that's that's what it happened to close. Oil, you know, oil didn't rally either. I take that back. I said that. Bitcoin didn't get invited to the party. For some reason, oil uh, was flat on the day. Now, maybe that's because investors are starting to factor in a slowdown in the economy, and they think a a slower economy means that we're not going to use as much oil. And so maybe that might be a reason that oil failed to participate in the rally. We're still trading below $80 a barrel. We closed at $78 a barrel. I think oil is going to join the party. Maybe it just didn't get the invitation. It's going to it's going to get there late. But uh, I think oil should be rallying along with everything else. But the catalyst for this party, what got the party going was the release of the CPI number for October. And the number came out better than expected, meaning lower right? Lower inflation is, is, is good news, right? So it was a beat, but just barely. So the consensus forecast was for a rise of 0.1. That's what everybody was expecting. Now, maybe there were some people that thought maybe it would be higher than that, but the official consensus was 0.1. The range was from unchanged to 0.2, not even a big... Range of opinion. Everybody was pretty sure it would come out between zero and and 0.2. And so we came out at zero, the low end of the consensus range. But the markets are celebrating that, that prices were unchanged instead of rising by one-tenth of 1%. I mean, it's one month, who cares? And it's a government index, so it's meaningless anyway. Now, it was an improvement over the prior month where prices were up 0.4, but that was a pretty big month, uh, the up 0.4. Now, the year over year number was supposed to come out at plus 3.3. And it came out at plus 3.2. Again, big deal. It's barely below consensus. It's hardly a reason to celebrate. The um, consensus forecast was for a range of 3.2 to 3.4. That's a narrow range. And we hit the lower end of the narrow range. We didn't go below it. Uh, But still, Wall Street reacted to this as if it was this great piece of news and it sparked an immediate rally. And then, you know, the momentum built across the board uh, on all these rallies. Now, if you X out food and energy and look at the so-called core there, again, another beat. The expectation was for up 0.3 and we rose 0.2. But again, the consensus range was up 0.2 to up 0.3. I mean, not a big range. And we hit the low number. It was either going to be 0.2 or 0.3. We got 0.2. Big deal. And the year over year core, excluding food and energy, was supposed to be 4.1 and we got 4.0 again big deal and i didn't even delve into the numbers because they round everything so i doubt the actual difference was a full tenth of a percent because you know everything ends up gets rounded so who knows it's probably even smaller a uh, difference than that but again the range of estimates was 4% to 4.1 but as a result of this number which is almost exactly what everybody thought it was going to be the expectations for rate hikes have plunged and the expectations for 2024 rate cuts have, have have moved up quite a bit. So as a result of this supposedly great news on inflation, the markets believe the Fed is pretty much done, that the war against inflation has been won, the Fed has been victorious, and now it can start, you know, taking its troops off the battlefields by by cutting rates, that's what the markets are now uh, convinced of. And that's why you got this this big rally. But the markets are completely wrong, right? This means nothing. And first of all, you still got year-over-year core at four. That's double two. And nothing in these numbers suggests that we're headed to two. Just because we're at four now, it doesn't mean we're going to two. We can just as easily double and go back up to eight. There's no reason to just conclude that that's where we're headed. But even at four, we're still way above uh, the Fed's target of, of 2%. And remember, even if prices are rising more slowly, they're still rising. If Americans can't afford to buy stuff at the current price, well, it's even less affordable When the current price goes up prices have gone up dramatically over the last two or three years real relief would require prices to come down so that some of these gains are reversed but to say no yes you know Powell always says inflation is causing all this misery i i feel your pain it's a hardship well if prices go up you're just adding to that hardship how is a lower increase uh, going to take away the pain of the prior increases. It's just going to make the pain worse. Now, for some people, maybe they can get a raise that exceeds that increase. But what if, what if you don't get a raise? Right? Or what if you lost your job completely? You had a good you know, full-time job. Like last month, 35,000 manufacturing jobs were lost, so people lost those paychecks. And maybe they got two or three part-time jobs to hobble together a living and they're still earning less but now prices went up they went up from levels that were already high so their misery just got even more miserable as a result now yes you can say well that one month prices didn't go up for the headline but the core went up uh you know owner's equivalent rent you know people are making a big deal now about this because owner's equivalent rent is really rising and a lot of people are saying oh we shouldn't count that because you know it 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 has a lag and it's rising now uh but actual rents aren't rising as much so we shouldn't count it but i remember when actual rents were soaring and owner's equivalent rent was barely moving nobody other than me was saying well we shouldn't pay any attention to owner's equivalent rent we should look at real rent no when, when it, when it serves Wall Street's purpose or the Fed's purpose to look at owner's equivalent rent, that's what they looked at. And they ignored what was actually happening with rents. But now that owner's equivalent rent is finally starting to move and it still hasn't caught up to where real rents are, they're saying, oh, we should ignore owner's equivalent rent and focus on the real rents that are not rising as much. Well, it, it's, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. That's how they try to massage uh, these these numbers. But they don't prove that the Fed is winning anything. All that's happening, and I've been describing this uh, for a while now, all that's happening is we're in the process of bottoming the inflation rate. We're, it's, this is trough inflation. These numbers are banging around the bottom and we're getting ready to start to move higher, and so we're going to start to move further and further away from the Fed's 2% target, not closer to it. I'm going to talk more about that uh, after this quick break, so stick around at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's me.com slash gold, code gold. All right, so Wall Street, I think, has it completely wrong in looking at today's inflation data, or at least the government's version of inflation, and thinking that this means that You know, the new bull market in stocks is here because the Fed has done hiking and the fact the Fed is going to start cutting and who knows, we may even get back down to zero. Uh, That might be the hope that springs eternal uh, for the market. And one of the other reasons that the hikes are or that Wall Street thinks the hikes are coming to an end is that the economy is clearly weakening. So you have a weakening economy. And now, at least as far as Wall Street's concerned, you've got this so-called benign Uh, inflation report because it was uh, one-tenth less than expected. Now, of course, it didn't surprise, you know, to the upside. It could have very easily have been worse than expected. So maybe there was a relief rally, too, that it wasn't worse than expected. It was better than expected, and we got a rally. But it's wrong to conclude anything from these numbers, certainly that the Fed is winning the war on inflation. That is a war that it cannot win. And and there are a couple of reasons for that. But one that should be obvious is what happened to the dollar today? The dollar got killed today. Why did it get killed? Because the markets think the Fed is winning the inflation war. And so paradoxically, they don't want dollars. See, the paradox is they wanted dollars when inflation was a problem and the Fed was fighting it. That's when they should have wanted to get rid of dollars. Because by definition, inflation means the dollar is losing its purchasing power. So why would you want to buy something that's losing its purchasing power? That is, you know, the the irony of the foreign exchange market. That's how they work now. It doesn't matter about the dollar's purchasing power. What matters is the direction of interest rates or real rates or the rates in the U.S. versus the rates someplace else. It was all a function of rates. That's how the, the traders had programmed, you know, the algorithms. And so as the Fed was fighting inflation, the dollar was going up. But it was the strength of the dollar that was actually doing the Fed's work because it was the strong dollar that brought down commodity prices, that brought down oil prices. That's what brought down the headline CPI. So the gains that have been made with respect to measuring inflation have been because of the strong dollar. But here's the problem. The minute the Fed claims victory or even the markets think that the Fed is winning, even before the Fed actually declares mission accomplished, the the markets start trading down the dollar. The dollar starts to fall. And as long as the markets think the Fed is winning, the dollar will keep falling. It was when they thought the Fed was losing, that they wanted to buy dollars, because that meant the Fed was going to fight harder and have to raise rates. But if the fight is over and the Fed has won, well, then there's no more rate hikes. And the next thing that's gonna happen, if the Fed's not hiking, well, then they're gonna cut. And then the dollar's gonna get killed. And in fact, if the Fed ever came out and ratified what the markets are thinking and actually said mission accomplished, you know, we're done, we now have a bias towards easing, the dollar's gonna fall through the floor. The irony of that is now commodity prices are gonna take off on the back of a weak dollar. And so now all of the progress that the Fed made that led it to believe it won the inflation war is going to be lost. And it's going to be obvious that maybe they won a small battle, but inflation ends up winning the war because the minute, you know, the Fed is winning, they lose because then the dollar goes down because there is no way to win this war because the minute they stop fighting, right, inflation strengthens. So in order to keep the inflation forces at bay, if they can, they can never let up. They have to keep on hiking rates. But the markets haven't figured that out. Of course, they can't do that because if they do that, then we have a financial crisis like the one that began in March. The banks start to fail. Uh, We have other things blowing up and breaking. And now the Fed is forced back into quantitative easing, just like it was in March. Only the next time they go back to the QE well, it's going to be for an even uh, larger help of the water. And and, and so there you get more inflation. So no matter what they do, uh, they end up losing the war. But the other thing that, you know, investors still don't seem to get is that it's been about 15 years since 2008 that the Fed has been aggressively creating inflation. That's been their policy goal. In fact, that's been the policy goal of all the major central banks. In fact, in Japan, that's still their goal. The, the, the fools in Japan are still trying to create inflation. At least in the U.S. and the Eurozone, we, we, we've claimed we've had enough, right? We, okay, we, you know, we definitely won the war against low inflation, and now we're fighting high inflation, but in the Bank of Japan, they still claim they need more inflation. They don't think they won their battle against low inflation, even though it's 3% and rising, and the yen, other than you know today, is getting killed but the point is when you spend 15 years creating inflation you don't erase that inflation with one year's worth of rate cuts rate hikes doesn't matter that we went from zero to five percent five percent is still not that high a rate but you got to look at all the money the money supply all the liquidity that has been pumped into the economy during that time period barely any of it has been withdrawn. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is still 8 trillion or just under, but it's 10 times, 10 times as large as it was in 2008. The money supply pretty much what doubled since COVID. Prices haven't even caught up yet. We still have a long way to go on the upside for consumer prices to catch up to the inflation. Even if they've taken away a little bit of the inflation that they've created, we still haven't caught up uh, to half of it. So prices have a long way to go. That's what investors still don't get. They think that, you know, uh, the Fed could just turn it off like a faucet and now the inflation is going to go away. It's not because they don't understand where it all came from and they don't understand the lag. And all that again had to do with the way the inflation initially entered the economy. The way it came through the banking system, prices that were pumped up were stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices, all sorts of prices, cryptocurrencies. A lot of prices went up because of inflation. Now we didn't count that stuff. None of that stuff is in the CPI. Even housing prices are not in the CPI. At one time they were. Back in the 70s, housing prices were in the CPI. They took that out, right? So if house prices go up, apparently that's not a problem. Now, it's a problem if you want to buy a house, right? But I guess if you own a house and you're looking to sell it, it's, it's a good thing. But if you want to buy a house and the price of the house goes up, that's that's inflation. The home you want to buy is now more expensive uh, to, to get. But we don't even count that anymore. Again, it's owner's equivalent rent uh, that, that we look at. But Inflation always ends up in consumer goods, eventually. It doesn't matter how it enters the economy. It ends up you know, in consumer prices. Now, if it starts out in the stock market or the bond market, it's just gonna take longer uh, before it you know, uh, matriculates down into uh, consumer prices. Now, in COVID, the inflation was injected immediately to the consumer. And so it went right into consumer prices. Now, of course, some of the people who got stimulus checks in the mail in 2020 and 2021, some of the people used that stimulus money to buy stocks, to buy cryptocurrencies. That's why you had that big rally in in 2021. That was caused by inflation. We inflated the money supply. We mailed out checks to individuals and they took those checks and they bought stocks. So the price of the stocks they were buying went up right now a lot of those stocks have come crashing down a lot of those covid stay-at-home stocks you know like peloton or you know a few of these other ones that you know crashed Uh, but that was inflation that drove that but a lot of the stimulus money that we sent out um was immediately spent right we sent it to people who weren't working and they used this money to buy groceries right To, to to shop online to buy whatever they were buying uh, and, and that drove up prices. So, that inflation that we created in 2000 had a more immediate impact on consumer prices. And we saw that. We've, we've already seen that, right? Prices shot up uh, as a result of this. But a lot of the inflation that was created before 2020, from QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4, all that stuff, we're just catching up to that. I mean, that's got a long way to go to work its way through the system. In particular, the exodus of of the world from their dollars. As the world is selling its US dollar-denominated debt, which we know is happening, what is going to happen with all that money? It's going to be spent on goods in the United States, because if our trading partners don't want to save their dollars, well, then they're going to spend those dollars while they were saving those dollars, they weren't bidding up prices. Now they were bidding up bond prices as they were taking all their trade surpluses and buying treasuries. They were pushing up bond prices. Uh, But now that they're selling those treasuries and pushing down bond prices, they have dollars. What do they do with those dollars? They spend them. Where do you spend dollars in America? So all the dollars that we shipped abroad now come back and they bid up domestic prices uh, and that's going to reflect in the CPI. Anyway, we got one more break. We'll come right back and uh, continue on with today's podcast. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time. And their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Now, another mistake that investors are making with respect to assuming that the inflation war has been won and that, you know, the Fed's going to be cutting rates and everything's going to be great is the fact that people expect the weakening economy to also help reduce inflation. And that's just not going to happen because again, inflation is not a result of economic strength. It's a result of too much money uh, chasing too few goods. And you're more likely to get that scenario in a weak economy than in a strong economy. Because in a weak economy, you have less production and you have uh, more people consuming because they're getting checks from the government. Uh, So that is an environment where you would tend to see higher prices, not in an environment where you have a vibrant economy and people productively employed making stuff. But it's particularly uh, important now considering the fiscal dynamic that is going on. Because a weak economy is going to explode the already exploding budget deficits. The official budget deficits are $2 trillion a year. Unofficially, it's almost double that. If you just look at the rate with which the national debt is rising, it's rising closer to $4 trillion a year than $2 trillion a year. And this is, you know, before we even officially enter a recession, if we're not unofficially in one right now. But as we go into a recession or as the current recession gets much deeper, those deficits are going to explode, but they're already enormous. The other thing is the, the interest rates, because it's not only that the government's gonna have a bigger deficit because tax revenues go down and expenditures go up uh, during, during the recession, And they're particularly going up. If you look at, you know, the the COLAs for Social Security, there were big increases and they just, you know, the IRS just came out with their uh, tax brackets and they've been significantly increased due to inflation. And so that automatically reduces uh, the income tax to the government because they raised all uh, the levels where the tax kicks in and where the higher brackets kick in. So that's going to reduce some of the, the revenues that the government would have otherwise collected. And so that's going to widen the deficits. But the big thing is the interest rates. Even if the Fed stops hiking rates, if they just stay where they are, you still have short rates above 5%. And as I mentioned on an earlier podcast, over the next three years, 50% of the $34 trillion national debt is going to mature. And as it does, it has to be refinanced at 5%. Well, the current cost is a tenth of that, maybe a half of a percent, maybe the average interest rate on this maturing debt. Some of it might be 1%. Some of it might be 25 basis points, but it's way below the 500 basis points, 550. They're going to have to pay to refinance it. So all those added interest costs are exploding already increasing deficits this is all going to fuel a much bigger inflation fire. Inflation is going to heat up as the economy cools down. The opposite of what everybody expects. You know, in fact, they're, they're, they're debating now. There's a, a bill now that Congress is trying to pass, this stopgap uh, spending bill, because they're about to run up against the, the debt limit again, or Uh, and the government's going to shut down. or We we don't have a budget, not the debt ceiling. Uh, We're not going to have a budget, and so we're supposedly going to get another government shutdown, which would actually be part of the solution. We need to shut down the government uh, because the the real damage happens when the government is operational. But the problem is these government shutdowns don't really shut anything down. The government continues to operate uh, during a shutdown. But if they pass this stopgap, bill, which uh, Mike Johnson, I think the new uh, speaker is supporting. Um, nothing gets cut. It just preserves the spending at the current level, which is already bloated uh, and, you know, it's much higher than it was pre-COVID. And we're running these huge deficits and the Republicans want to vote to kind of continue that. Now you got maybe 20 or so Republicans in the, you know, conservative uh, caucus. Um, that, that, that oppose this, right? So in order for the Republicans to pass this stopgap bill, uh, they're going to have to get Democratic support. And of course, the Democrats will support it. They love all this spending. Why would they not support it? Uh, so it, it's the Freedom Caucus. That's what I was thinking about in the Republican Party that, you know, they're, they're at least saying that, you know, this is no good. You know, we, we need to take advantage of the leverage of this, you know, phony shutdown to try to get some actual spending cuts. And again, we need real spending cuts, not the phony spending cuts that they won't even talk about because a cut in spending, when when a normal person talks about cutting their spending, it means they're going to spend less, right? If you personally have a financial problem and you got to cut back on your spending, right? You you, you just, you know, you you have too much debt and you got to cut back on your spending. Let's say you were spending, you know, $2,000 Two thousand dollars a year on entertainment, you might say. Look, I got to cut that back. I'm going to spend the thousand. I'm going I'm I'm to cut my spending in half, right? That would be a spending cut, right? You're in trouble. You're spending too much money, and so you spend less. This is how Washington defines a spending cut. Let's say Washington, you know, Mr. Washington had a family, or he was spending two thousand dollars on entertainment, and he had to tighten up his belt. He said, "You know, I was planning." on spending $2,200 on entertainment next year. So I'm going to cut it back, and I'm only going to spend $2,100. And that's a $100 cut, right? which, of course, it's not a cut. It's still an increase. So, And even the cut itself was tiny. But if you simply reduce the extra spending that you were planning on, you can't call that a cut. I mean, that wouldn't work in the real world with your creditors who are telling you, look, you know, you're you got to cut back on your spending and all you're doing is reducing the planned increase in your spending but we're not even getting that they're not even talking about doing that they want to preserve all the spending that they currently have planned without reducing any of the increases despite the fact that we're you know trillions and trillions of debt on these on these deficits and we we can't even have small cuts at this point when you're running 2 3 4 trillion dollar a year um Deficits, even actual cuts of 100 billion, 200 billion, 300 billion, 500 billion, are too little, too late. We need substantive cuts across the board. Entire agencies and departments need to be eliminated to get decent savings. Um, you know, we got to cut entitlements now. People who are getting these checks have got to get smaller checks. Oh, by the way, I guess I don't know if I owe an apology. I guess I'm just gonna have to call it a correction, but. When I did the last podcast and I talked about the Republican debates, I incorrectly attributed a statement that was made by Chris Christie um, to uh, uh, DeSantis, and, and and so it wasn't DeSantis; it was Christie uh, that made that made the statement. And basically, the statement was: uh, Christie came out and said, "Look, you know, not everybody gets food stamps, so not everybody should have Social Security." You know Warren Buffett shouldn't have his Social Security, right? So he made that point, and I said, "Well, that's it, you know, for DeSantis." Well, no, it wasn't it for DeSantis because he didn't say it. DeSantis wimped out like a typical politician and said, "No, I wouldn't touch Social Security." Because remember, he he said something that gave Trump a window a while ago. I remember Trump was attacking DeSantis for wanting to cut Social Security, and DeSantis said, "No, no, no, I don't want to cut it." That's why I, you know, when I was doing the podcast, I was surprised that he then you know, ratified that he wanted to cut it, but no, he didn't say that. It was Chris Christie. And the reason that Christie was willing to say what Rick DeSantis wouldn't is because Christie knows he's not gonna win. He's like 1% in the polls. He doesn't have a prayer of getting the Republican nomination. So since he knows he's not gonna get the nomination, well, he could talk responsibly about cutting Social Security, even though the cuts that he's talking about Again, are not enough to make a difference because even if you take Social Security away from all the billionaires, I mean, so what? I mean, you're not you're not saving anything. There's hardly any billionaires out there. You need to take it away from the middle class, but nobody wants to do that because there's a lot of votes in the middle class, uh, and so nobody wants to do that. and Especially, I guess, a guy like DeSantis. I mean, he's governor of Florida, right? You got a lot of Floridians who are collecting Social Security, uh, and uh, you know they certainly don't want. Uh, their governor or a presidential candidate talking about taking away their social security because again, as I explained on the last podcast, people believe that Social Security is their money. Now why do they believe that? Because the government lied to them. That's why. Right? government lied to them profusely and continuously. And so the public believe the lies. Now no politician wants to tell the truth. They want to continue to lie uh, to, Uh, To the public, you know, now that I that I'm bringing this up. Hello. No, I want I want to get to that in a bit. It was a good transition. I wanted to talk about FINRA, but I'm going to do that. But I want to save that till the end of the podcast. I I want to stay on the the economic stuff. And I only only sidetracked to uh, the Social Security thing because I wanted to correct, uh, you know, the mistake that I made on the last podcast about, uh, you know, saying that, that uh, DeSantis wanted to cut Social Security, because no, he, he he wants to win, uh, even though he's got no chance at this point. But so since he wants to win, he he, he doesn't want to have anything to do <laughs> with cutting Social Security, which, of course, is something that needs to be done. But of course, it's all going to get cut through inflation. That was the point I made last time. I mean, inflation is going to destroy the value of Social Security. Whether the politicians are honest enough to cut it, they're going to do it anyway uh, through inflation. Another point, though, that I, that I wanted to make that you know, maybe it should have had an impact, but it was shrugged off again, uh, but the whole, the whole episode is really absurd, is that Moody's on Friday night, so this is last week after I did my, my Friday afternoon podcast, so I didn't talk about it then because it hadn't happened. I, I actually found out about it as soon as I was done with the podcast. But Moody's downgraded U.S. Treasury debt. From AAA, right? Moody's, you know, ranks it with a big A and then two little A's. That's their top rating. So, I mean, that's their version of AAA. I mean, there's three A's, but for some reason it's AAA, right? But that's number one. That's where the U.S. is at AAA. They put it on negative watch from stable. So before, Moody's said U.S. government, AAA, and everything is great. We're not worried. It's going to stay there. All they did was say, you know what? We're getting a little nervous. Maybe we're going to end up downgrading it. We haven't downgraded it yet, but our outlook now is negative instead of stable. I mean, what took them so long to have a negative outlook? I mean, the outlook has been negative for decades. It didn't just go negative on on Friday. And by the way, just to put this in perspective, they've got 10 categories of investment grade bonds. So the U.S. is in the number one category. All they're thinking about doing is going from number one to number two, right? They'd still be eight notches below in investment grade. Then they have another 11 notches of non-investment grade, otherwise known as junk bonds. So from AAA to the lowest junk that they rate, and of course there's bonds that are so bad they don't even get a junk rating, right? But if you look at their total rating spectrum, there are 21... Uh, levels that you could get. And the U.S. is number one right now. And all they're thinking about doing is going from one out of 21 to two out of 21. But they haven't even done it. All they're doing is thinking about it. And it's like, they should have been thinking about it a long time ago. That's what Standard & Poor's did. In fact, Standard & Poor's actually downgraded. They didn't just go to a negative watch. In 2001, which is what, 13 years ago, S&P downgraded U.S. government debt from AAA to AA+, plus, right? So one little like plus sign away from AAA, right? The smallest downgrade they could make. They did that in 2011. Now, the reason they said, well, it was the, 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 the fiscal problem. Remember, 2011, that's when the Fed was doing QE. So we were, you know, cranking up the deficits. Well, in 2011, the national debt was still below $15 trillion. It's now $34 trillion. It's more than doubled. So Standard Poor's got worried about the deficits in 2011. And as a result, they lowered the rating on U.S. debt from AAA to AA+. Well, why haven't they lowered it again? Because the situation is so much worse now than it was in 2011. I mean, I'm sure they couldn't even fathom back then that it would be this bad now. So if they were worried about it then and they downgraded the debt, why haven't they downgraded it more along the way? What, did they stop worrying? It was a big problem in 2011 when the debt was under 15 trillion. But now that it's over 33 trillion, it's not an issue because there's no more downgrades. I don't even think S&P has the U.S on negative watch. I think it's been stable, you know, the whole time. Now, uh, Moody's, which is the third rating service, earlier this year, Moody's actually did the downgrade. They also went from AAA to AA So they did last year what S&P did in 2011. So Moody's was the holdout, the one uh, company that hasn't downgraded the U.S. Treasury at all. And now they finally, you know, joined the party late and said, we're thinking about downgrade, right? They didn't even want to do it. They couldn't even commit to downgrading uh, the, the, the rating. And again, none of these rating agencies want to do this. Remember, Standard Poor's got punished. The, the US government went after S&P big time. They got fines and all kinds of problems uh, following this. Now, of course, they didn't say that this is why we're doing it, but they didn't do anything to Moody's or Fitch, right? They focused all their anger on S&P, I don't think that was a coincidence that the only rating agency that downgraded them is the one that they came down on, uh, and and that was kind of like sending a message: hey, don't do this, right? And you know, so for a long time, the other rating agencies didn't do it, and in fact, S and P hasn't downgraded them again since because they don't want the retaliation. By the way, this is all a government-created, you know, uh, uh, oligopoly these are the only three rating agencies that the government has sanctioned, right? So they're the only ones allowed uh, to rate uh, and, and then be used on Wall Street or used for bonds. And a lot of these companies, right, I mean, they owe, they owe their existence to the government because the government can say, oh, you know, we're going to yank your, you know, your accreditation or whatever it is. And so they're not going to be honest about their rating for the U.S. government. They have to be nice to the government. They have to give them a good rating. But also remember, all of these rating agencies had high investment ratings on all the subprime mortgages that went to zero. Before they went to zero, they had high ratings. You know, they were investment grade. And, and then they all crashed. So they were looking the other way because they, you know, they wanted to help their buddies on Wall Street securitize mortgages. And to do that, they needed these ratings. And so in order to get paid, uh, they needed high ratings. And so, it, you know, it was a big incestuous relationship but the worst one is between the U.S. government and these, uh, these rating agencies. But again, when you're rating sovereign debt, it should be a completely different criteria than rating private debt. Because when you're rating private debt, it's really about the ability to pay. Does this private entity, a corporation, or even any sovereign that doesn't print, like states, or cities. They don't have a printing press. So their ability to pay their debt is governed by their ability to collect taxes, right? Or, or go deeper into debt. But that doesn't really count. If you have to borrow money to pay your debt, you haven't paid your debt. You've just gone deeper into debt. So it's really the tax base. You have to be able to raise taxes. Or if you're a corporation, you have to be able to, you know, raise prices. Uh, you have to generate income. Or you can, you know, sell off assets, and you know, states can do that too. They can sell assets to pay off their, their liabilities. Corporations can can do that. They could, you know, or they can issue new stock, right? And they can raise money, and then they can pay off debt by basically diluting uh, the value of their company, bringing on uh, on new investors. And so, when a rating agency is rating somebody like that, it's really about default. Like, what is the risk? that this company or this state or municipality, what is the risk that they can't pay back the money they've borrowed? I mean, that's basically it, right? You're not, it, it's got nothing to do with inflation or purchasing power, it's just, you loan this guy a $1,000, you loan this company a $1,000, are they gonna give it back to you? What, what? If it's a very high likelihood that you're gonna get the money back, then it's gonna have a high rating. If it's kind of iffy, if it's a dicey, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, right? You're gonna have a lower rating. And of course, the higher the rating, the lower the interest rate. Because if, 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 if a borrower is less likely to pay you back, why would you loan that person money? Well, because they're paying you a higher rate of interest. That's why. They're having to pay more to borrow because there's a greater chance they're not going to pay you back. Because otherwise, why would you loan to a, uh, you know, a lower quality borrower? Right? No, you'd loan all your money to the guy who's more likely to pay you back. Well, if the risky guy says, well, I'll pay you double, I'll pay you triple. Okay, well, I'll take a shot because I'm getting a better return for taking a higher level of risk. But when you are rating uh, government bonds, when they can print money, well, hell, they're not going to default. Right? Just print the money and give it to you, right? So there's no risk that they're not they're going to default. I mean, in theory, they could default, but they never do. They just print money. And so, what you should be rating when you rate the United States, when you rate Germany, when you rate Japan, when you rate any sovereign nation that's borrowing in a currency that it prints, it should not be default that you are rating. It should be devaluation of the currency, inflation. What are the odds that this government is going to pay you back with money that buys as much as the money you loaned? Are they going to pay you back through inflation versus legitimate taxation? And if that was the case, U.S. Treasuries would be junk. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, why even bother to have a rating? All this is meaningless. You're going to get your money. You're not going to get your purchasing power. So you're going to lose. You could lose everything in U.S. Treasuries. They, it doesn't matter what the rating is. So if they, if they looked at that criteria, so you can look at other governments. That have, you know, small national debts, balanced budgets, and say, yeah, even though this government prints money, it's not going to have to do it because it's fiscally responsible. It can pay its debts legitimately through taxation, through revenue. So let's give that country a high rating. But a country like America, that has no chance whatsoever of paying you back with real tax revenue, it's certain to deflate, to, to inflate. And devalue the currency. How could you? How could you give it a high rating? It's got to be a low, low rating. Anyway, I want to finish up uh, by talking about Finra, which is the uh, private company that was created to regulate the security industry. And I, I've been a big critic of Finra, even though I've been a member for 30 years. I never wanted to join this club, right? I I joined it at gunpoint, which is why I think the whole thing is unconstitutional because the U.S. government requires me, because I've been a stockbroker my whole life, not my whole life, but since my 20s. But the government says, if you want to be a stockbroker, you got to be a member of FINRA. And if you're not a member of FINRA, you you can't be a stockbroker. And to me, I think that's unconstitutional. I, I, I shouldn't have to join a private company in order to pursue a line of a vocation. You know, now, you know, if, if they want to say, hey, you know, if FINRA was voluntary and they want to have an organization and, and brokers can join it and pay dues and be able to tell their customers, hey, I'm a member of FINRA, right, and therefore I'm following all the FINRA rules. Well, then if you want to work with a broker who follows the FINRA rules, well, you can work with me because I'm I'm part of FINRA. I have to do what they say. But you should also be able to say, look, I, I'm not a member of FINRA. So if you want to work with me, you're not going to have any of the protections you get from FINRA. You're just going to work with me and I'm not a part of that club. I should be able to do that, but I can't. And even if you tell people, I'm not a member of FINRA, okay, well, then you can't be a broker. Right? Well, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because I'm finally going to be giving up all of my security licenses. I've got, I don't know, like eight or nine or 10 of these things and I've had them for, you know, most of my adult life and I'm 60 years old and um, this is it. This is my last year that I'm going to do this. These guys have just been pissing me off. I mean, one of the things they did a couple of years ago, they did this major investigation of me and I don't know what prompted it. I think it might've been the false allegations, made in the media about me using my bank uh, to help people launder money or evade taxes so maybe they thought well if he's doing all this bad stuff at his bank what is he doing at the broker dealer you know and so they decided to investigate me although i don't know that that's why because they never really told me but I i had to give them all this information like all my bank accounts all my companies all these records, I mean, I, I, I gave them so much information. Months and months and months. I spent all this time putting together years and years worth of statements from accounts that I didn't even have open anymore, right? It was all this work that I had to do. And I said, you know, when I, I was working through a lawyer, it's like, well, what are you guys looking for? Well, we're not going to tell you. We don't even know what we're looking for. We just want to look through all your stuff to see if you did something wrong. Well, that's unconstitutional if the government did it. The government just can't say, "Hey, Peter, uh, give us all your books and records for every comp- company you're involved in, every account." I had, to, I had to get information from companies. I was gathering all this information. If the government said you got to gather all this information, we just want to look through all your stuff, all your personal effects, and your papers and all your transactions, and you know, just to see that you know what you did. We have, you know, we have no idea if you did anything wrong. But we just want to see because if we find you did something wrong, you know, we're going to fine you or we're going to we're going to turn over the information to the Justice Department or they are. The government could not do that. The Fourth Amendment protects me from unreasonable search and seizures. The government can't just go on a fishing expedition just in case I did something wrong. They have to have probable cause to believe I did something wrong and then they can get access to my records if they get a judge to give them a, a warrant based on swearing that they have probable cause and they're looking for something in particular. For example, let's say the government thinks that I stole uh, some art, and they have probable cause to believe that that I'm the thief, I I ripped off this art gallery, and they think I've got the art uh, in my house, right? I'm hiding it. They would go to the judge and say, hey, we think Peter Schiff stole this art, here's why we think that, we think he got in his house, I need a search warrant to get into his house, I want to look through Schiff's house and we're going to look for these paintings that we think he stole. And they get a search warrant. So they can come into my house. They got a warrant. I got to let them in and they can look around for these paintings. Now, if while they're in my house, they find, you know, some drugs, which they wouldn't find in my house. But let's just say for this example, they found a bunch of drugs. They couldn't say, oh, Peter, we're arresting you for possession of these narcotics. No, no, no. I mean, because they didn't have a warrant for narcotics. They had a warrant for paintings. If they happen to find something up, well, they can't use that because they, they weren't looking for that. So they, they couldn't use that as evidence to convict me of anything. They'd ha- they would have had to have thought that I was uh, hiding drugs and they would have to have a warrant for drugs, right? That, that, that's the constitution. It protects me from government going on a fishing expedition. Well that's exactly what FINRA did. They went on a fishing expedition, but they're not the government. See, what FINRA says is, okay, if you don't let us do this, we're going to take your licenses away and uh, you can't be a stockbroker. So they have this power over me. The government can't tell me that, but they create this private enterprise that can now tell me that. And according to FINRA, if they found any evidence that I did anything wrong, they could have turned it over to the Justice Department to charge me with any crime they wanted. So the Justice Department couldn't do this directly. They couldn't bust into my house and get all these records just to see if I did anything they're wrong. But they send FINRA out to do it for them, and now they get to do it because they can blackmail me, because they can say, look, if you don't let us do this, you, you can't be a stockbroker anymore. Well, at this point, I'm like, you know what, fine. I, I don't want to be a stockbroker anymore. I haven't really been working as a stockbroker for years. That's where you you know, talk to clients, and you, you do a trade, and you charge a commission. I haven't been doing that. I've kept my licenses but I haven't really been doing that. Uh, I've been managing an RIA, we, we collect fees. That's not necessarily just in FINRA. That's that's the SEC's uh, bailiwick. And you know, the SEC is better than FINRA. The SEC is a government agency. Finra is worse than a government agency. It's a private agency created by government where government forces you to be in. It's worse, I mean, it's the pure definition of fascism. It is a fascist institution, uh, government, uh, uh, private, uh, you know partnership, and really, what Finra does is it acts as a gatekeeper to protect the big firms, the major firms, from small firms, from competition. They run up the costs. In fact, you know, I started my broker dealer in 1996. I sold it a few years ago. The Europe Civic Capital it doesn't exist. It, it's been renamed, but I started it. I was a one-man shop, and I could never do that today. It's impossible. the The regulatory burden is so high now that I could never do today what I did back then. Nobody could do it. In fact, one of the reasons I sold a broker-dealer was all the costs of complying with all the rules and regulations. It was too high. Meanwhile, people still lose a lot of money. Investors are about to get completely destroyed, I think, through inflation uh, with uh, the uh, Wall Street uh, investment advice. And, you know, Federer doesn't do anything about that. In fact, recently, and this is another reason that I want to do this, is Uh, the firm where my licenses are just got a long letter from finra complaining about my podcasts right and basically they said that i'm i'm making all these exaggerated unsubstantiated claims and they don't think i should be able to 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 make these claims and they're all related to gold uh and actually a lot of them are bitcoin that's the funny thing they they put into this letter uh, segments, like a transcript, where I'm criticizing Bitcoin. I'm criticizing um, CNBC for having guests tout Bitcoin. And they're calling me out on that. They're saying, well, this is exaggerated. This is extreme. Oh, you're calling it a Ponzi. Well, yeah, well, so what? That's what, that's what it is. But it's not even a security. How, how they have any say over my opinions on Bitcoin. And of course they, they don't like my opinions on gold. They don't think I have any rational basis for being as bullish as I am on gold. Well, they don't even regulate gold. It's not even a security, it's a commodity. It's not even in their regulatory framework. They're, they're trying to uh, bring it all together by saying, well, I talk negatively about Bitcoin and positively about gold as a way to, to, pr- to promote the gold fund, Euro Pacific gold fund. Well, so what? And then they're criticizing me because they're saying, I'm not providing enough basis uh, for my opinion. Like, it's a podcast. I'm not going to bore people. In fact, they talked about all these extra disclosures and warnings that they think I should be saying. Every time I say something, they think there's like 10 other things that I should punctuate it with. and, And all these rules that they just made up arbitrarily that they decided... You need to do right. The government didn't decide this. FINRA decided this, right? And they're saying, well, you should do that. If I had to say all the things that they want me to say, nobody would be listening to my podcast because they'd be too boring, right? They people would stop listening because all I would do is regurgitating, you know, disclaimers. And you know, I don't I shouldn't have to do this. You know, they are they're saying I have no basis or my, my, my claims are exaggerated. You know, they're not exaggerated. You know, when I was saying, oh, the subprime market is going to crash, the housing market's going to crash, They, oh, that's an exaggeration. Well, it happened. I mean, what about bonds? Bonds got destroyed. People lost half their money in bonds. I was telling people, hey, you don't want to own bonds. It's a big bubble. Bonds are going to crash. They could say, well, that's an exaggeration. That's extreme. Well, but it happened. I mean, why can't I give extreme advice? It's my opinion. In fact, everything that they took issue with, you know, with respect to the market, gold in particular. It was, I think, I believe, it's my opinion, all that's there. And now they're criticizing me for stating what I believe, for stating my opinion. So they're trying to put pressure on this broker's firm to like, to take, to stop me from doing this. Hey, you got to remove this content. And you know what? I, I, I don't want to have my free speech stifled anymore uh, by this organization. You know, at one point, you know, they, they forbid me. When I went and I testified, it's, if you go and watch my first congressional testimony, I went to Capitol Hill and I testified. Mr. Schiff goes to Washington. At that time, I was under FINRA orders to stop hiring people. They, they, they forced me to stop hiring people for a long time. It took me years before they would let me hire any more, more brokers. And I, I had a lot of demand back then for brokers, and uh, they weren't letting me hire. Uh, hire any. And I was testifying on a panel on how to create jobs. And I said, well, why don't you have these entities stop telling people not to hire people when I'm I'm trying to hire them. Uh, but I'm finally going to be FINRA free. You know, I used to joke with my now deceased uh, partner at Europe Pacific Bank that, you know, we would name a, a yacht FINRA free, you know, when we were down here. Uh, but I, 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 I got to be FINRA free. So this is my last year. I'm going to let all these licenses lapse. I have no intention of using them again. And so, you know, I also I was, I, had, I was staring at this long list of continuing education that I was going to have to do. They just changed the laws again and they have all kinds of BS. And almost all the continuing education is anti-money laundering stuff. And, you know, I mean, all a bunch of nonsense that's got nothing to do with, with investments. But I'm done with it. I don't want to take any of these exams anymore. I don't want to have to comply with their audits. I don't want to have to, uh, you know, kowtow to them and be be nervous. Because a lot of the stuff, people say, Peter, why don't you talk about individual stocks? Well, they won't let me. I'm not allowed to do that because I don't want to break any any FINRA rules. Well, you know what? I won't be a member of FINRA starting next year. And so I could talk about individual stocks and I will. And in fact, I'm going to be able to speak my mind a lot more freely, not only on my podcast, but when I go on uh, interviews on television or other podcasts, if I don't have to worry about the broker-dealer compliance or, 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 or FINRA, I'll be able to uh, be a lot more honest. You know, earlier in the podcast, I talked about how the government has lied to everybody about Social Security, right? The government gets away with lying all the time, right? They, they falsely told everybody that they, they own their Social Security when they know that they don't. The Supreme Court says no. This is an income tax. The tax is an income tax and the benefits are like welfare. You have no more entitlement to a social security check than you're entitled to a welfare check or a food stamp check. But that's not what the government was telling people. I'm honest to people about uh, what I think is going to happen in the markets or what I think is going to happen with particular economies, what I think is going to happen in the economy. Right? I'm always honest. And, and, and they're saying I shouldn't even have these opinions that what I'm saying is an exaggeration or it's misleading. No, it's not. Not if I believe it and if I preface it uh, with uh, opinion. Of course, everybody that listens to my podcast knows that I'm expressing my opinion. I never guarantee anything. I never tell anybody that I I guarantee you I'm right and if you follow my advice, you're guaranteed to, to make money, no. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that they criticize and they put it in this letter I'm talking about how the risk how risky it is, how you can lose all your money, how you should only invest in gold stocks if you're willing to lose all your money. I say all that stuff. I, I put the warnings, but they're like, well, there's not enough warnings. It's not balanced enough. It's like, how 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 much how many warnings am I gonna put in a podcast and still have it entertaining? You know, this is not a advertising brochure. <laughs> I'm doing an entertaining uh po- podcast that includes economics, politics investing, and I never really get into any specifics. I tell people, talk to the representatives, talk to the brokers, read the prospectuses, right? I don't get into the specifics and they're still taking issues. So that's the end of it. I'll be able to ring in the new year uh, for the first time since uh, my mid-20s, not being a part of, of, of this organization anymore. But it's not going to limit my ability to continue to do what I've been doing with respect to managing money. Uh, I, I I'm, you know, I still own my registered investment advisory company, Europe Pacific Asset Management. I still own the mutual funds. We're still gonna be managing them. And I still can uh, talk to clients and work with clients with respect to the accounts that we advise and that we sub-advise. That's it for now. Again, stick around. I'm gonna be doing a live Q&A immediately following this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to uh, the YouTube channel and like the podcast which I'm sure you like it. It's been over an hour and you haven't tuned off. So anyway, bye for now.